Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Football Scouting Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Neil Stratton from Inside the League. Neil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Paul. I'm honored to be here. Um, big fan of XTB and everything you guys do. And uh, I applaud you all not only for the recent uh, book that you put out, but also because Everyone I talk, everywhere I go, I see y'all. I see your tweets. I see you in person at the various All Star games. I, I see members of your team, and um, it's very different from your garden variety uh, Twitter account or whatever, where people are just kind of spouting off opinions. I really am impressed by how thorough y'all are and, and your willingness to go the extra mile. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Neil Stratton is the uh, founder of Inside the League, which is I'm not quite sure what would be the best way of explaining it. But you kind of <laughs> keep track of like you're kind of like the uh, main news for like front office people in the NFL. Like if a if a scout gets hired from one team to another, you would be kind of uh, kind of first on the case and you do lots of studying of front offices and how the big boys in the NFL work. Would that be fair to say? Is there anything you'd like to add to that? You know what? That's probably as good as I could even come up with, Paul. I tried, I try to make inside the league at the nexus of agents and agencies, NFL front offices and scouts and college personnel departments. We're trying to be that resource for all of them. There really isn't one uh, that tries to own that space. I think we've, we've tried to, be pretty aggressive about it and have had some luck with it. And uh, But that's what intrigues me the most, and that's, I guess, what I'm most comfortable talking about. And um, so I've been blessed to have been able to kind of occupy that space for almost 20 years now. Absolutely. And that's just a really inc uh, incredible spot. Um, one of the things I've always felt is that um, I feel like I'm perfectly qualified for a job. I don't even know if it exists or know what it is, <laughs> but you've essentially just found a great medium of being consistently around the game that you love and being able to have an impact on the people in the industry. But how did you, uh, how did you get to that, uh, get to that spot? Like, how did you fall in love with football and how you set yourself up as um in your younger years to where you are now well growing up paul i was you know i'm six four and uh so i was always a basketball guy until about i don't know my junior year of high school i was always thinking hey i want to play college basketball maybe pros whatever and i think it was my junior year that i realized i'm not really very good at basketball so <laughs> maybe i need to focus on football because my frame would kind of trans you know would, would work for that game as well. And so um, I kind of focused on football more so my senior year of high school and then was fortunate enough to go to Navy and play there as a walk-on. And I tell people I was probably the worst player on the worst team in America the year that I played at Navy. So I had that distinction, Paul. Uh, you know, I don't want anyone to think that I was Roger Staubach. I was kind of the opposite end of that. So, but I did love being part of it, and I love being in the locker room, and I love the, the camaraderie and the fraternity that comes with playing uh, such a unique sport. And so, after after I left Navy, I wound up transferring to a school called Marshall University in West Virginia, and I got a degree in journalism. And so I kind of bounced around from newspaper to newspaper until I arrived in Houston in '97, I believe. 
And uh, for everyone who's listened to me on a podcast or on Clubhouse or anything at all, uh, I'll try not to bore you, but but to go into the, the details of it, I got to Houston and I was working at the Chronicle kind of in the lower echelons, one, one step above being a janitor. And um, I met a girl whose fiance was a football nut like I was. And he said, you know, he wanted to be kind of the next Mel Kuyper Jr. And Mel's kind of been passed up in this space by a lot of people, you know, McShay and, and uh, to some degree, um, you know, others that are in the business and even you guys, XTB. And um, so, but anyway, he wanted to be the next Mel Kuyper Jr. And so for four years, we did a draft guide. And this was a print draft guide. Um, and then this is a time when print was kind of on the downslope and the internet was on the upslope. So we did this for four years and I started going to all-star games and meeting people in the game. And as I was realizing there really probably wasn't a market for a draft guide the way that we were doing it, I was also realizing there was nothing out there that kind of covered the, in, the guts of the game, the inside of the game, the business of it. And in the early 2000s is when the idea of sports news, sports business news was something that people could grasp and that they accepted and they understood what that meant. You know, money was being plowed into the business. Stadiums were being built. Um, you know, head coaches were starting to make millions of dollars. Athletic directors were making millions of dollars. TV deals were soaring. And so I thought, you know, maybe I could carve out a very small part of that pie and I can be part of this. And so, we launched in 02, and the initial idea was strictly to capture the agent market. At the time, there were about 1,500 certified agents, and it was a business that was poorly understood very much as it is today, um, but a lot more of a Dodge City atmosphere. You didn't have to ha pass an exam to get in to become certified. I don't know that you even had to have a deg degree at the time. Now, you have to pass a very difficult 60 question exam and you have to have at least a secondary degree to even be certified as an agent. At any rate, there are a lot of agents and a lot of people that are fascinated with the business and the sport management degree was starting to become in vogue in colleges across the nation. And it seemed like a good time to do this. So we launched in 02 and I had done some market research with agents and I'd done some market research across the game. And I thought that this was such a great idea that you know, when we flipped the switch on this sucker, it was going to explode and I was going to become world known and I was going to be known as an expert in the industry and I was going to be, you know, popular parties and I was going to be, have all these things and I'd be rich beyond that. And so when we launched, we launched Labor Day of 2002. And when we, when I launched that day, I was afraid, I was honestly afraid that my servers were going to crash and I was going to be, what am I going to do? Because I've got all these people that are demanding my information and demanding my service. And what will I do uh, that loss of credibility when I don't have all these servers that I'm linked to. And so on the first day we got two subscribers and on the third, second day, one of them wanted his money back. Um, so that was my kind of come up and on exactly where I stood in the football world and kind of who I was and, where my ideas really, really sat. Um, at the time, we were charging 250 for a nine-month cycle, and we would. The plan was to take the summers off, and so I immediately cut that back to $45 for a nine-month cycle, and even at that rate, wasn't getting in much interest at all. And so 
but I just, I'd already decided I'm going to do this, and I wanted to try it, and so I ended up going to call these All-Star games. Well, I went to the Shrine game that year, which was in San Francisco, which is where it used to be played, and I got there, and the first day I went to the practice, and I watched practice and scrutinized everything that happened, and wrote practice reports in detail and, and posted them on my site, and I was really excited and proud about what I published, but I knew no one was reading it, and it was a little, a little demoralizing. So on Wednesday, back then, at the Shrine Game, that was their big day, and they would have, uh, I think what they called the pro workout, which essentially was the offenses of both teams, of both teams, and it was designed to make to be a real evaluation day for the scouts that were there. And at the time, the Shrine game, as now, uh, was the number two game talent-wise. And so I was gearing up for that one morning and kind of walking around the team hotel because I was staying in the hotel where all the players were and just kind of wandering around. And I went around this one corner, and suddenly I see 150 guys lined up essentially in their underwear um, getting ready to go into weigh-ins. And I didn't even know what I was looking at. I was completely caught off guard. So when I rigged figured out what was going on, I thought, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here. So this is at a time when the NFLPA didn't publish the agents that had signed the players and no one was doing that. And so I went down and I went to the last guy in line and I basically in reverse alphabetical order and asked each one of them who represented them. And they just kind of gave me their agents. And so I waited around for the next, for I waited around for the weigh-ins to end and then the next team came in and they weighed in and I did the same thing. And so I got back to my room and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just publish this. Maybe this is something people would really love to read. And we like quadrupled or, or more of our subscribers that week because no one else had this. And I was happened to be in San Francisco and I could tell agents that we had this stuff, information. And so pretty quickly we, we picked up some new subscribers and I thought, well, maybe there's a niche for this. Um, Fast forward to the summer of 2007, and we were toddling along, not making much money. Still, we're asking 45 bucks for a nine-month cycle. We had gotten a decent uh, subscribership base at that point, but it was certainly not something that could could feed my family or support my family. So we got to the summer of 07, and I had run, helped run an all-star game here in Houston um, called the Inajuice North-South All-Star Classic, which was a one-and-done all-star game took place in January of 07 here in Houston. And I was dissatisfied with my role there, dissatisfied with the level of pay. And so I sent an email to the owner of the Hula Bowl on a whim. And um, this was probably in June or maybe even May. I'm not sure. Somewhere in the spring time of, of 2007. And uh, by and by, I was hired as, as the executive director of the game. And so... I was gonna go to, so I was gonna go to Honolulu and I was gonna run an all-star game and I was gonna liaise with NFL scouts and I was gonna, you know, pick my own rosters and I was gonna do all the things that I always wanted to do, and so I thought, wow, pinch me. I mean, this can't be true. So I shuttered ITL probably in September of that 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 uh, year and I never resumed the publishing schedule basically from taking the summer off and so went to run the Hula Bowl. Well. Long, 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 lengthy story short, I got back in January and found myself the ex-executive director of the Hula Bowl because there was no longer Hula Bowl. They uh, kind of pulled the plug after the 08 game. So I got home and I thought, you know, 
for about a week, I sat there and cried in my beer and, and felt sorry for myself. And, you know, woke, gave, gave my wife the woe is me routine for probably a full seven days. And she finally got tired of hearing me whine. And so she said, you know, Neil, when you started inside the league, your plan was to charge, you know, three, whatever a year. And you wanted to make it something serious and you wanted to focus on the game and what you wound up doing was making it something where you still had mock drafts and you still had player rankings. You still had all the trappings of a fan site, but you weren't providing the focus that you needed to kind of go in the direction that you claimed to, that you're going to go. And so I said, woman, you know nothing. Shut up. Leave me alone. But the more I thought about it, and I thought, you know, maybe you're right. So I went to the combine that year and I started and I found all my old subscribers said, listen, I'm going to go to $25 a month rate. I'm going to go month to month, the whole 12 months, 12 month subscriber cycle. And we're not going to worry about anything, but what you guys need to know. And most people are like, who are you? And please get out of my way. And so, you know, for, we relaunched in September of that year and it was bad because people were saying, you know, who the hell are you to charge 25 bucks a month? I used to get this whole thing for $45 for nine months. And so I was like, well, okay. And so I didn't have very high hopes until about December when all those people started coming back and, and, you know, at this new rate and they knew what I did. They knew what I was going to deliver in January and through the draft season. And I guess I had made enough of an impression upon them that they felt like it was a worthy $25 a month. So, that was 08 into 09, and um, we humbly got started that way, and that was, my gosh, 12 years, 13 years ago, and um, it's been pretty wild since then. We do a lot of different things now. We have expanded uh, well beyond the realm of just agencies. We, I think we still own that, that part of the market as far as information and being able to help people, but now we have, you know, practice agent exams, and we have a study guide which are extensive and and not to sound immodest, but they're the very best resources on the market. No one else can touch us. And we now we you know we during a normal year we have a big seminar at the combine and we present awards and we have all active NFL scouts vote on which team did the best in the draft and then we we hand a trophy to them. We also did a kind of a. Um, uh, lifetime achievement award for agents and a lifetime achievement award for scouts. We hand both of those out too. This year we had to do it online, but we were able to do it. it. It was, I think our fifth year of doing that. And so that's pretty exciting. And we've now have a newsletter that goes out to about 5,000 people in the industry called the Friday wrap and it's free, but it links back to the things that we talk about during, you know, during the course of the week. And, and it kind of gives an overview and summary of the football industry each week on the college and, and pro side. And also, we try to lead off with something, either kind of a study or a feature or a survey of some kind that helps people understand the game a little bit better. And we've got a blog called Succeed in Football, which, of course, is free. And we talk about uh, you know issues of interest to the game, especially as it uh, pertains and addresses people who aspire to be in the game, to work in the game, either, either on the agent side or, or the scout side or maybe even the college personnel side. And then we've also got something I'm really excited about and that I've had a blast doing called and it's a podcast called the best player available podcast. And we talked to former scouts and executives this year about the 2017 NFL draft in a 10 week series. And the amount of information, the amount of learning that I've been able to experience has been 
unbelievable because there are just so many things to learn, so many insights to gather. The people that have agreed to be, to be guests have been phenomenal, and it's just a joy to do this. It's uh, If you're a, a wacko like I am, if you're a nut about the game behind the game, if you love to hear the stories about how the industry works, then you know if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to. We've had a great panel of guests, and our last two guests, uh, which have just agreed to uh, do it for weeks nine and ten, are going to blow people away when we tell them who they are. We're really excited about it. I'm not ready to announce them yet, but they're coming. And then last but not least, um, I've also authored two books. One was called Moving the Chain, which is essentially a parent's guide to the NFL draft. My, my son is going through the draft process. I need to know everything about it, how to choose an agent, when all-star games are chosen, how the combine works what a pro day is, uh, what the what are, what are the costs that I might have to take on, everything. Soup to Nuts is part of moving the chains. And then last August, I published a book called Scout Speak. And Scout Speak is kind of my love letter to the scouting industry. It's about the industry. It's about how the industry works. It's about how people get hired into it. It's about how people get fired out of it. It's dozens of stories about how player teams arrived at selecting the players they did. And, why they messed up or why they succeeded or you know, any number of things related to the industry. And I had a blast writing it and it's been a blessing to hear some say, Hey, I really enjoyed reading it. I really got a lot out of it. It took me about two and a half hours to read. I read it twice. I mean, that's incredibly flattering to hear that someone read my book twice. Yeah. I know. I know you, I know you've been a fan and I appreciate that, Paul. Um, so a lot of people, have been kind enough to put reviews on our Amazon page and all those kind of things. Right now I'm working on book three, which is going to kind of be an in behind the scenes on the 2016 draft, which Paul, as you know, that was the Laramie Tunzel. Where were you when you saw Laramie Tunzel's video uh, kind of draft? But there are so many other stories. Dak Prescott went on the third day, you know, uh, that, that draft. Uh, Michael Thomas was drafted after five other, five other wide receivers, most of whom are no longer in the league. You had two quarterbacks at the top of the draft who looked like potential franchise guys. Both those guys essentially, well, they've both been traded by their original teams and are kind of trying to fight back after really experiencing some early success. You've got so many different angles to that draft that are fascinating. And it's been really amazing digging into that and writing about it and talking about you know, how players decided, how teams decided to do what they did. And so... I, Paul, I'm one of the people that got to do what he wanted to do all his life. You know, I got, I, I mean, to be able to be someone who's, you know, somewhat of an NFL writer, to write about, write about, and made the friends and, and built the relationships with, and earned the trust of so many people that I admire is uh, just uh, like yourself, Paul. Um, is just such a blessing, and uh, you know, I mean, I pinch myself every day. I, I read somewhere one day that the average male in his 50s, the worst day of the week to him, or the worst time of the week is like at 1 o'clock on Sunday because he's got that pit of his pit in his stomach that he's got to go to work on Monday. I never had that pit in my stomach. I mean, I, I love doing what I do. Um, it still fascinates me. It's still fun. It still interests me. And uh, I don't ever take that for granted.
yeah, there's just so much to learn in football. And I just kind of like get amazed just how many different angles there are and how much more things that there are for me to learn. Like, I remember when I was uh, like 16 and 17, where I knew more about football than any other kid in the school. Like, I read all the history books. I knew who Johnny Unitas was. Um, I knew... I, I knew, uh, like, the plays in Madden, and I knew which plays to call up against different schemes, and I just thought I knew it all. And then, like, now I'm 25, and I'm like, I know nothing about what's, uh, what's going on. And it's it's just so kind, it's such a great feeling to know that there's so much more to learn, and there's so much things, uh, so much things to digest. So uh, yes. I want to get more uh, get more into your uh, podcast. I've listened to the uh, first three episodes with uh, Blake, Bob, and uh, Doug. So the essential theme is talking with the scouts and the general managers um, and getting their stories about what uh, happened in the 2017 draft, correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And hearing the stories, getting the insights. And you know, there are a few questions that are, are stock questions that I ask to everyone that I talk to, but then there are others that go in different directions based on what kind of season did that team had the year before that dictated why they'd want to do what they did and who are the players they were looking at, who are the players that they didn't. I mean, a lot of, I mean, you've heard it, Paul, a lot of the scouts and, and, and executives have said, you know, I thought that guy would suck. I never thought he'd be a player. And that's fascinating to me. But yeah, the, the, the main thrust of it is to talk about the 2017 draft, to talk about the stories behind the stories, all the behind the scenes, how the decisions were made. That's the kind of stuff that really intrigues me. Yep. One of the things I was kind of uh, wondering about is when I think about the football industry, I think of like an industry that is very like secretive. Like there's just so many things that people would be like scared, uh, scared to say. Um, I know I think it was what uh, when Doug was there, he was uh, jo- uh, joking about how he's not going to say anything about uh, Mitch Trubisky because he's still friends with Ryan Pace. Yeah, um, like, yeah. how do you like? How do you like create the environment of getting these people to speak openly and honestly with you? Well, the first thing I do is I send them the questions in advance. And I and I I think about when I was in journalism school and how my professors would frown on me saying that. Um, but I try to make this clear. This is not a gotcha interview. This is not me trying to trap you. As a matter of fact, there was one question that I've asked so far in our that I had to go back and kind of do some work on it because um, my guest said some things that might have framed him in a bad light and I had no in fact I was aggressive about going in and changing the answer around not changing the answer the answer stayed the same the substance did but I removed some of the stuff because I didn't want him to be betraying any confidences or anything that might reflect on him and I think the people that had been my guests know number one that we're friends um and so but number two that i'm not trying to do anything that's going to shame them or i'm I'm not trying to uh you know gain any fame or any place in the business by you know by taking away from them that's not my personality and you know most of these people have been friends of mine for a long time not only that we've worked together on different projects and so they trust me and i think that's been one of the big pluses I didn't know, Paul, when I went into this, if people would trust me. I didn't know what their, you know, what their point of view would be on this. As you alluded to, it is a very secretive industry, and it's kind of those, you know, what you see here, what you say here, 
when you leave, you know, let it stay here kind of things. And, but they've all been very candid and very open and very uh, informative and just incredibly enlightening to me. And I hope that people that listen to the podcast have, would agree with me on that. Yeah, because I know like whenever I go down to the senior bowl and talk with um, certain people and they like tell me stuff and they'll be like, you're not going to tweet that, right? You're not going to put that on your podcast, right? And I'm like, because they're so, I guess they're just so kind of used, whether I'm not sure if it's because of like the stereotype of younger people being addicted to social media or just a lack of trust and like how journalism is, a lot of journalists are kind of like the gotcha kind of journalists who are always trying to get one over, get one over you or try to make, uh, try to uh, drum things up. Right. But yeah, that was one of the things I kind of noticed about the industry. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I was always going to be one of those people who um, if you tell me to keep a secret, then I'm going to I'm going to keep a secret or what happened, what we what we talk about in between us is going to be in uh, in between us. So yeah. that's that was one of the first things I re- uh, recognized uh, about the podcast where I'm like, wow, this is uh, really, really good stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm really happy with the podcast. I know uh, m- my guy Mark Jarvis. He's been listen- listening into the show. He's been sending me links and letting me know when uh, new ones, new episodes come out. So yeah, you're definitely providing something of of great value to our industry. And it was it's definitely one of the I think it's actually like the only real podcast I'm listening to right now besides wow. making my own. Flattered. That appreciate that. Absolutely. And let's move on to uh, your book, uh, Scout Speak. Uh, There were plenty of things that I found very uh, interesting in the book. But uh, one of the things that I just kind of uh, keep going back to is everybody kind of wants to get their foot in the door in the industry. Everybody wants to know how to get like their first job. And it seems like the um, the two places two that you need to go after if you want to get a job as an area scout or either getting a job as a college, uh, college scouting assistant or as a job with NCS in Blesto. Let's start out with the uh, college scouting assistant because the first thing that it said there was very strange and it was that they don't really want college scouting assistants to have lots of scouting experience because they want to mold you. How, um, how do I kind of get scouting experience, but not get so much scouting experience that I'm going to be difficult, uh, difficult to mold. And what is like the best way of getting uh, college scouting assistantships? Where do the, where do those lucky lads come from? Well, you are already doing the things that you need to do to build those bridges. I mean, the important thing to remember, Paul, and that I think a lot of people get lost on is people in the NFL, first of all, the NFL is very, very, very much a relationship-based league. People get hired and fired more often on who they know than on how good they are. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily a testament to the NFL. Um, it's not maybe as merit-based perhaps as it could or should be, but it's the facts are the facts. And so if you're going to work, if you aspire to work in the league, you have got to go out and build relationships. You have got to go out and find a mentor. You've got to go out and find a champion, someone who will go to bat for you, someone who will be your advocate, someone will, who will steer you back on course if you happen to steer off course. And that is so important for everyone to understand if they want to work in this business. And that's why 
more often than not, people that get hired were working at a school, working in the personnel department. Maybe they were the pro liaison and were able to build a relationship with a scout and to prove himself to that scout that, hey, I am a hard worker. I'm honest. Um, I show up when I'm supposed to show up. I keep myself clean and professional, all those kind of things. And they left a positive impression. And then when the, when the scout went back to headquarters, the, and someone said, Hey, know anybody that's who they volunteered. And so it's so important to, you know, to go and be there. I mean, you've been the senior bowl, Paul, there are so many, especially, I mean, 10 years ago, this is almost like a job bazaar. And I think a lot of people see the combine as that place to go if they want to go and build relationships and meet people and make contacts. And I wouldn't necessarily dismiss that, but I call the combine the NFL's by invitation only party. I mean, if you don't have the right badge, you can find yourself being pretty lonely at the combine. When you go to the Senior Bowl, I call that like their backyard party because everyone's there. And again, nothing to speak as if COVID never happened. In a normal year, you get there and you go to the morning practice, and then you come, then you go to lunch somewhere in Greater Mobile, and then you go to the afternoon practice, then you go back to the hotel and you hang out on the mezzanine floor with everybody else, and then maybe that evening you go have a beer, you go to Vitz across the street, or you go wherever, and everyone kind of moves in one gigantic pack, and so it's easy kind of part of that crowd and to meet people and to network and and all those kind of things and whereas at the combine there isn't ever that big homogeneous mixture of people that are kind of moving in one direction and but you've got to go and be part of those things i mean i spoke to the personnel symposium i think two or three years ago in nashville and i said you know there's probably i don't know 400 500 people in this room college personnel people from every school that you can imagine and most of them wanted to be nfl scouts and and so i said you know when y'all were going to the ncaa uh event in january in san antonio how many of y'all even knew that about two and a half hours down the road in fort worth there were about 100 to 150 scouts who were working doing their thing all down there you could have been volunteering with our game and helping and meeting those people and proving yourself to them. Instead, you went and you sat at a table with your buddies and drank beer for a few days. I'm not against sitting with your buddies and drinking beer. But if you're serious about working as a scout, you got to seek out opportunities to prove yourself, to show that you are a hard worker and do all those things. Simply posting your resume somewhere or telling people that you like Trevor Lawrence as, as the number one pick in the draft on Twitter is not going to get it done for you. There's just too much competition. It's just too difficult to do. You're not going to get noticed that way. And I don't care if you are the one guy who says that uh, the best player of the draft, you know, is going to, or Penny Sewell is going straight to the Hall of Fame, or you know, whatever else you want to say. If you've got a hot take that turns out to be true and you've got to document it, it's still not going to win you a scouting job. Um, you've got to go out and build those relationships and make friends and work for people sometimes for free and do the things you have to do to pay your dues and get someone to go out there and tell your story. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So I know all some of my listeners here are in, uh, in college right now, uh, for 
the, our guys that are in college, what is the best position to uh, go and volunteer for in the football department or in the athletic department to uh, go after? Because me, I went the sports information route, and I, I mean, it, it was great because I got to like go to a bunch of games, and I worked everything from volleyball games to women's basketball games. But I was working more with kind of like press releases and things of the uh, press releases and media guides, and making sure all of the media people had uh, had what they need before the game, and setting up and tearing down uh, the press room. Um, that was where where I did where I did. And while I definitely had fun and really enjoyed it, it didn't catapult me as much as I thought it would. What would you say are the best spots to go, uh, the best people and the best places to go after in a college athletic department if you want to really set yourself up for uh, the, fu- uh, the future? you got to show up in the football department and volunteer. And the difficulty for doing that is people are like, oh, okay, so you want me to go and I'm going to be there anytime that I'm not studying or in class and I'm going to sit in and maybe watch tape and tell the coaches about who they should be recruiting and, um, you know, help the, when the recruits come in, help them tour. And on game day, I'm going to go and I'm going to kind of you know, do that kind of thing. You may think during September and October, November, that that's kind of awesome. I mean, it's tough, but, but still awesome. But the hard part, Paul is okay. Now we're going to a bowl game and that bowl game is going to be, on December 26th, and so and we're going to need you for that, and so you're going to need to go with us to wherever, and you know Dallas or Miami or whatever, or maybe not, you know, maybe not those places, maybe Detroit or somewhere that's cold, you know, and we're going to need you to um, do all those same things, and I know you'd love to go home for Christmas, sorry, you can't do that, and by the way, you're not getting paid for any of this stuff. That's what gets hard, you know, when the guys, when people have to stay over for Thanksgiving because there's a game on that Friday or whatever else, that's part of the dues paying process. It's difficult. And so if you can go in and stick that out and ascend to where at some point you become a paid part of the personnel office, and then maybe you get something with real responsibility and then you get something where you're kind of public facing when it comes to scouts. Now you have done it. Now you're on the path, but that's not an easy path to go down. I, I mean, you certainly got a lot of experiences being in the SID's office, but it's not the same, I think, with working on the football side. And if it's me, if it was my son and he wanted to be a scout, I would say, listen, the first day that you enroll, you go to the football office and say, I'm here. What can I do? And I think that's the best way to do it. Now, let's say you've already graduated from school or let's say that you um, are going to a school that doesn't have a football team or whatever, then you've got to be more aggressive about it. You've got to go to the all-star games and say, what can I do to help? You've got to go to, uh, you know, maybe you know of a player who's holding a football camp during the summer. You've got to go find out how you can go help. You've got to go to where a college is holding a satellite camp and go and volunteer. You've got to figure out a way. But, but you will know that you're making progress if you are building relationships and number of the numbers in your phone begin to add up of people that are in football and you get closer and closer to I guess the the, the nucleus of, of the NFL and of college football I mean, as you get closer to the bigger teams and the bigger players and all those kind of things that's the only way you can do it is, is with your own sweat equity um, working hard being 
willing to work for free at times. I don't know of any other way to do it. The uh, Now, that's one road if you want to go the traditional road. <clears throat> My road was very different. I, you know, I got home from the Hula Bowl. I think I was 40 years old, maybe 41. Scouting was out of the question. Even then, people were hiring younger people to work younger, you know, to work cheaper. And I had a wife and two kids. And so, I, I mean, so really inside, resuming inside the league was really my only option. And so I had to go hard down that road. At the end of the day, I was able to find a niche that no one else either had interest in or had never thought of. Probably more of the, the, the former than the latter. And I was able to own it and make it my, my home and work, 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 and prove to people that if they subscribe to ITL, it would not be in vain. So you either got to go hard down the traditional road or you got to find a road nobody else is on and travel that one and get really good at that one. Yeah, that, that, that all makes sense. And looking back on it, I do kind of regret it. I'm really hoping that there can someday be a path of, I worked at PFF for three years and I made this amount of draft guides and, or I could do like what Nolan Naraki did and was just a draft analyst for so long that eventually, and, um, and built relationships through that, that eventually an NFL team wanted him in the building. Right. Uh, that, that's kind of what, where I see, uh, where I'm at. I know, um, I'm 25 now, and I was just trying to think, because in your book, it said that pretty much every um, every uh, person who gets these entry-level jobs is two years within a, football, uh, within a football office. And I don't think they're going to count my four years as an SID and three years at PFF as two years in a football office. And a lot of the stuff that I would need to do would be unpaid and just would not really work with where, uh, where I'm at right now. So I'm kind of like doing something in between where it's like I'm paying my dues, um, researching every single injury history of all of the players in the draft. But I'm also really hoping that the uh, line between PFF and the NFL and like all these uh, charting ser- um, services can open up a little more. And, well, I'm also going to keep doing another thing I love, and that's uh, networking and being nice to people and meeting people and letting them tell their stories. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm guessing getting a job as a Blesto scout or uh, what was it? The NSC kind of uh, com- the, N- the NSC, right? Blesto and NFS. NFS, National Football Scouting. N- NFS. Okay. Um, I'm guessing getting jobs with those places would be very, very similar. More or less. Um, the thing about Blesto and NFS is it's almost like you have to kind of sponsor an NFL team. Uh, uh, what was that? You went out. Sorry. You almost have to have sponsorship by an NFL team to work to work in those jobs because you're going to be paid by uh, the teams uh, more or less when you're doing that. And that's kind of a gross simplification. But you're kind of working within the confines of a team. And then if you're covering an area, then you're going to be providing your scouting with blesto with national um so that they can share it with everyone else and now the thing that's kind of interesting about blesto and nfs is typically the scouts that come in are entry-level scouts who are still learning and so you get a lot of uh interesting analysis for example um i remember the year that peyton manning uh came out uh, i'm sorry eli manning came out um he was rated he was not the, the highest rated quarterback in the draft um Per Blesto, the highest rated guy was um, oh, his name escapes me. He went to Tulane, had transferred. JP Lossman. JP Lossman. 
And uh, so it's kind of funny how it all works out, you know, because you know, here Eli had been you know, kind of crowned and was a, a football blue blood even before he got to Ole Miss. And, you know, he, when he went in, went in and wound up winning two Super Bowls and all those kind of things. But, you know, in the eyes of some entry-level scout, he was only the second best guy. Um, someone else got a higher rating. So um, I think that Blesto and NFS are kind of seen as separate entities and maybe a different road in. But at the end of the day, the pathway is really about the same. So I feel that Blesto in NFS are like two of the most important institutions in scouting, but like a lot of the people that I would talk to at um uh on draft Twitter would barely have any idea what the uh, what that is. They probably just heard about it but don't really understand fully what they do. And honestly, I don't think I fully understand what they do besides um, uh, they they do uh, help with scouting reports with the NFL teams. And uh, do, are they the are one of those the guys who um, oh, no, that's the college advisory committee that um, scouts all the juniors and sophomores and tell them whether they come in and come back. Right. So there Did you repeat the question. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. With. um. I think I answered my own question. It's the CAC that does the um, uh, college players that are juniors that go back or go to the NFL, correct? Correct. That Yes. Right. Yes. They do all that. And then NFL teams kind of pitch in on that. And they they serve on a, on a rotating – I mean, you probably already know all this stuff. But on a rotating basis, NFL teams pitch in on the CAC, CAC stuff to help give juniors a determination of, of whether or not they should leave or not. Okay. Um, what else does the um, the uh, Blesto in the NFS uh, do to help uh, help scouting? Like, what is their impact on the NFL? Well, during excuse me during the fall, they're looking at rising seniors. As they get into the spring, as I understand it, they're doing more on the, on the rising juniors, so that they can provide a report on players that will be um, you know seniors in the following year. And, and during a normal time around Memorial Day, uh, everyone convenes in South Florida, and whether depending on if you're an NFS or a Blesto team, and um, I think there's still about a half dozen to a dozen teams that don't subscribe to either service. But if depending on whether or not you subscribe to one of these teams, you go down and they essentially present all the top prospects to you and give you their master list of here are the guys you need to see, here are the schools you need to go to, here's where we have them all rated, and so. So, other but other than those roles, those are kind of the roles that NFS and National fill. I mean, NFS and Blesso fill. Now, they're doing a lot more with juniors and underclassmen as more and more underclassmen are entering the draft early and that kind of thing. But in the old days, traditionally, they were just looking at the seniors, the rising seniors, so they could evaluate them and have something for teams to start with when they got their Memorial Day and kind of started developing their schedule for the following fall. Okay, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of interesting that NFL teams essentially outsource their initial boards to uh, essentially uh, are they third-party services? Or do they have any official association with the NFL at all? They are third-party services, but NFS specifically essentially runs the combine soup to nuts, start to finish. That's why they're based in Indianapolis. And um, so I would say that in a, <laughs> There probably was a time when Blesto was maybe the premier, the primary uh, scouting service. I think maybe NFS has passed them a little because 
I think they've got more subscribers, but but mainly because they put the whole combine together from selecting the players to inviting the players to lodging and feeding the players to organizing the drills, you know, to renting out Lucas Oil Stadium and all those kind of things. And of course, the medicals, which are probably the most important part of the combine. So um, NFS is definitely, while they are not necessarily part of the NFL, they're a third-party service. They're very established in NFL circles. And Blesto is too, but just because the combine has become so big, I think NFS has maybe reached a place of primacy there. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. So uh, here's, I guess, a more uh, fun, uh, a little bit of a uh, left turn. Um I was kind of wondering what your uh, what your takes are on uh, certain like draft narratives or certain things that it seems to be like all the media is saying, and I just want you to, want you to let me know if that's uh, tr- true or not. Um, so, uh, for example, Justin Fields was pretty much the consensus number two in like November, but now uh, lots of people in the media are like almost putting him down at QB five. No new games played. Um, how? Um, are the media narratives that come around post uh, post Super Bowl are they team driven or are they media driven or are they uh, or do they come about by more people watching film? Great question. It's a great question, and it's something that I've tried to explore in the podcast because I think Mitch Trubisky kind of became this is this is in 2016. I think Trubisky kind of became part of the national narrative on top quarterbacks around November. I think he had had a couple big games, um, but he didn't really, he didn't have a Sterling from start to finish senior year. And that was his only year. And he didn't have a Sterling Sun Bowl, uh, you know, his last game, but somehow that narrative had developed that here's a guy. And obviously the bears liked him enough to trade up to get him at at number two. Um, I think that a lot of that had to do with, the agency representing him doing a great job of promoting him and uh, the media, what have you. I think there were a number of pluses there. There were, there were teams that liked him in the first round, but I think as it became clear that a couple teams liked him more than anybody, anybody else, and we're going to put him at the top. I think that's where that kind of, I think the, the press kind of followed. They were connected enough to realize that I now is Justin Fields really going to be, uh, is he really a guy that may fall out of the first round now? I don't know. Um, I just I don't know if anyone can answer that question. But I think that part of it is the media narrative. I just don't know exactly how that's developed. I know that agents play a big role in that. I think that you know there's a lot of monkey see, monkey do when it comes to mock drafts and the media following each other and all those kind of things. But giving you chapter and verse on exactly how these things develop and what have you is really hard. It's something I'm trying to figure out because I think it would be the key to understanding so much about the draft, but you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I still don't really know, Paul. Yeah. And that, that's kind of like the tough thing. It's like, um, if you were to buy a draft guide, whether it be ours or whether it would be like, um, like the Lindy's and their Athlon magazines that you were to buy who did all of their reports and are done by very well-respected people, but they did all of the reports in January. All of them would have Mac Jones as around a second round quarterback. Absolutely. And now there's discussion that he's number three. And I'm almost like wondering, it's like, does he just have the best agent in the world or something? Like how does, <laughs> how, does this happen and it's just like kind of uh it's kind of uh, making me uh very confused and well that's why this is fun to discuss uh here's an 
here's another one. Um, I was told by a scout that if you uh, draft for exceptions, like you should expect to fail. Um, one of the biggest exceptions in the draft is Devonte Smith. Uh, I've done like I've uh, cranked out the uh, research on him for on a Pro Football References stat head and found out like the only wide receiver after 2000 with like a lower BMI who's had like any kind of sustained success was Todd Pinkston. Our NFL, um, our NFL teams looking at something that almost kind of seems like a, we used to call it like a Sports Center LeBron stat, where it's like, oh, LeBron is this, this, and that on Wednesday. Um, how much do they care about like exceptions and certain parameters with, say, height, weight, and speed? Are there teams that'll just say, oh, it's a corner over four, five, nine, he's immediately off the board no matter what? Or I know I know your book said the first rule is that there are no rules, but I was kind of wondering <laughs> what was uh, what what your thought what your thought is on uh, teams with height weight height weight and speed and in particular Devontae Smith. You know I think that I remember when Christian McCaffrey was coming through, and I hate to keep going back to 2017, but it's kind of the front of my mind because of this podcast. And I remember when he was coming through, and everyone was raving about him and what a talented player he was, and I kept thinking. Well, you know, that's great this fall, but whenever the scouts get a hold of him, they'll tear him apart because he's only like 205 and he's a bell cow running back. Well, guess what? He was still, what, a top five, top six pick or whatever and has had a great career, but um, has you know missed last year essentially because of injuries and has gotten nicked up and beaten up and all those kind of things. Um, you know, Paul, I don't, again, when I started doing this in 02, I, I, I said, you know, I want to learn what the secret sauce is. What is it that determines all these things? I don't know any more than I did, I think, 20 years ago. And and speaking to all these scouts and general managers, they've all got different re- reasons for why they did what they did and why they dismissed the players that they did. They will allude to someone's size. Or they'll allude to someone's pedigree or the fact that they didn't just make plays. Or they'll just say that someone's instinctive, which could mean almost anything. It's just really hard. You know, it's like... Uh, you're trying to pin uh, Jello to a wall. It's it's so much. The scouting remains the most beauty is in the eyes of the beholder profession maybe out there, and that's why you see so many players flame out, so many players fail that were taken in the first round. But I I don't think there's any denying that there's a pack mentality and kind of a narrative that builds around every player, and that narrative for Smith is um, very talented but small. I don't think that necessarily means he won't be a successful NFL player, and I don't think that necessarily means he doesn't warrant being selected in the top 10. It's definitely a consideration, but how much of a consideration it should be, we'll only know that in about five years. And, and uh, you know, again, that's, I guess, what makes the draft so intriguing. That's what makes player evaluation so mystifying and is that no one knows. And I don't care who you are. If you've been in the game long enough, you've got some really – impressive misses and if you're lucky some impressive hits but no one bats a thousand that's for sure and anyone who's batting anywhere around 300 to 400 is doing pretty well especially when it comes to the first round exactly or uh here's an um one of the things that i always say on this podcast and i definitely kind of want, uh, want you to agree with this um is uh have you um when teams draft 
is it true that like the head coaches and the GMs pretty much take um have all of the influence over the first couple rounds, and uh, it's the scouts who mostly draft in the later rounds? Because uh, I was told that if you ever get a job at, as a scout, your pr- number one priority should be hitting on your day three guys, and I kind of took that to heart by um this year for the draft guide, I pretty much almost exclusively scouted day three guys and some day two guys. Is that kind of like the uh, the right mindset? Is that if you want to be an NFL scout? you're going to need to, uh, the guys who grow in NFL scouting are the guys who hit in late rounds. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and that's, yeah. And that's substantially true because, because the guys are going day one, day, day two, they've been seen by five, six, seven more scouts and evaluators. So that's, that's no longer one person's evaluation. Add into that, the fact that that player probably first popped on the radar screen, courtesy of NFS or Blesto. So no one can say, this is my guy. Because it's everybody's guy. But when you get into rounds five, six, seven, especially in undrafted free agency, yeah, you're going to have scouts that players that maybe one scout saw or maybe two or sometimes maybe just a scouting assistant saw. Um, There's a great story in uh, I guess it's our week seven podcast that I just taped with Randy Mueller. Um, Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's the one that comes out tonight. Losing my mind. But he talks about how he showed up for Austin Eckler's pro day. And Colorado State was in the morning, Colorado was in the afternoon, and then after Colorado was done and all their players were off the field and they let all the kind of regional Colorado-type players come in from Mesa State and School of Mines and all that kind of stuff. And Eckler came out there, and there were only about five or six scouts left that were even there because they're all exhausted and they feel like they've seen everyone that matters. And Eckler comes out there and blows everyone away. I mean, he was better than anyone that had been at UC, anyone that had been at Colorado State, all these scouts had seen all these players, 50 or 60 during the course of timing, and he was the one that stood out. But not everybody was there for that. So, um, But the scouts that did were probably area scouts and scouting assistants. The other ones had to go hard to the hoop and say, this is a guy y'all should be looking at. So, yeah, I, I think your assessment is pretty much correct. You know, your, your day one and day two guys, the head coach, the GM – the DPP, those guys are the ones who are going to be swinging the biggest batch for them. But the later round guys are the ones where that's where a scout can really cut his teeth and really make his mark. And um, I that'll probably always be true. Um, uh, I have like a couple more questions, but I feel they kind of are going to have the same kind of similar answers of like to the Devontae Smith question of, hey, we just don't know. Um, uh... How do... Um, how do you? Uh, what strategies do you, um, have you heard from scouts on evaluating character? Because that's kind of the one thing that I do not have access to, but it's one thing that I like think about a lot because I just like thinking about like character and like ethics and stuff. And mm-hmm. I work like regular people jobs, and I'm almost like want, wishing I could be in HR so I could do like scouting Taco Bell people. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what are what are some of the um, what are some of the best things that you've heard from scouts about uh, character, how much uh, character and how much that matters? Cause I know you've talked a lot about it on your podcast regarding players like Joe Mixon and mm-hmm. uh, players like that. Well, obviously domestic assault, domestic violence are a no, no for everyone right now. And so I think that's a red flag for all 32 teams. Now some have greater risk tolerance than others. The Bengals, being one of those teams that's probably got more risk tolerance than anybody else. The Cowboys, uh, to some degree, the Chiefs, especially when John Dorsey was there. 
um, and, and a handful full of others that are willing to take a risk. But I think at the end of the day, it is risk tolerance. I think it's interesting that, you know, I named the Col- the Cowboys and the Bengals. They happen to be the two teams where the owner is also the general manager, essentially, or came from the same family. So there is total job security. If they hire someone who turns out to be a real bad person, the GM's not going to get fired. Um, I find that most teams that are willing to take more character risks have that level of certainty. Maybe it's not, maybe the GM isn't part of the family of the ownership, but they've got a number of winning seasons. They've, they're on good solid foundation, that kind of thing. They feel like they can roll the dice a bit more where teams value character more typically is the ones that are on thinner ice. And so I don't know if there's a way to generalize how all teams measure character. What I can say is this, some teams are more, have, more risk tolerance, they've got more of a stomach for it than others. And more often than not, these are the teams that are either winning or they know they can't be fired. And so I guess that's kind of where you're coming from. Now, the way that drugs have been looked at over the years, the way that um, showing up late for meetings or back-talking coaches has been seen, has changed. I mean, so many things have changed. Uh, you know, today, I w- again, the pod that'll come out tonight late tonight uh with randy mueller he talked about how when mccaffrey was coming out there were discussions about how he had opted to skip his bowl game and that was a character ding to them so everyone kind of looks at character differently but again most often the ones that are most leaning on character are because they know they're in a very very secure place they don't have to worry about getting fired or looking bad because they know that one way or another they're they're gonna live to fight another day. Okay. And uh, this this is uh this is my la- uh, last question. So uh, recently, Gil Brandt tweeted out that um when he was talking to scouts, he had a very very wide range on just uh, on Justin Fields and mentioned that somebody had a um I think somebody said they had a uh, fourth round grade on Justin Fields, which just which to, to normal people sounds absolutely kind of ridiculous. Right. And I was wondering, I hear so many like reports coming from media that are like supposedly anonymous scouts saying things that just seem so completely like something like a scout wouldn't say. Uh, what are those? Are those smoke screens? Are those actual scouts? Are they talking to like scouting assistants who are just misevaluate, um, just have a really strong opinion on a person? What do you what do you think? Th- what are those reports, and how should those be like interpret uh, interpreted if you want to be like a really kind of like next level football thinker? Well, I think that I think we all know that there's a lot of subterfuge out there this time of of year, and everyone's trying to trick and you know use whatever dishonesty or whatever they can to put themselves in a more advantageous position with that said if i could wave a magic wand and have access to all 32 teams boards every year i that would be truly incredible truly fascinating because i know that there would be teams that didn't have the guts to say that justin fields was a fourth rounder um, publicly, but he was, um, you know, there's, you know, scouts have said Trevor Lawrence shouldn't be the best, the, the number one pick, you know, there are all kinds of kind of outlandish ideas that, are, that we would find outlandish because they go against the narrative. 
they may be right, Paul. Um, you know, maybe maybe they're not, but most people don't have the guts to say that out loud. They're willing to maybe you know set up their board in their draft room with all the other people that are in it with them and that they know would would never you know release this information. They would keep it confidential. But there are a lot of opinions on these players, and they don't all follow the same narrative. And the media narrative is not always the correct narrative. And so. Excuse me. And, and um, you know, so I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but I know that, again, it keeps going back to the same thing. In scouting, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And I have been trying to find the the seams, the, the fault lines, the walls in this industry on how people evaluate them. I don't think I'm any closer to that than when I started. You know, it's it's very much of a – it's just a very subjective business. And – the, the person who looks like a genius today may look like a big dunce tomorrow. And I don't know if that'll ever change. And people think that there is a way out with analytics. I don't know that there is. I think that scouting is always going to be a, much more of an art than a science. And I think it's always going to be an uncertain business. And I think that's kind of what makes it fun. Yep. Uh, to a uh, quote, uh, chapter one in your book, uh, te- uh, the chapter is 10 things you need to know. Number one, throw out all the rules. No matter what any scout said, there are none. As a fan or as a young football professional, you'll be told certain positions have to have certain sizes, run certain speeds, or have certain productions. Maybe, maybe not. Scouting is, and uh, scouting is, was, and will always be highly subjective. I still believe that, man. I still That's, believe that. That, I think, is kind of the... Like, all of my questions just kind of fell under that. And I'm like, I had so many good questions that they're all answered in your book. Yeah. It's hard, man. It's hard. I, it's, I mean, it is so subjective that it's hard to even, I mean, hard, hard to almost answer any question. But, again, that's just kind of what makes it fun, you know? Exactly. And that's why that's why we love football. That's why that's why we do all this. Because we're going to have some uh, differential. Uh, different opinions um not everybody's going to be able to scout all 400 to 600 players who are going to be on an nfl roster at some point who are in this draft class so right that that's what makes us fun and that's why we uh, all love doing it uh neil do you want to uh pitch your podcast your book your twitter all the uh, all that other stuff one last time for the listeners you know i've been (laughs) I, i hope i haven't promoted myself too much but um yeah, I mean, we've got so many things and so many, I think, ways to, for people to learn more about the game. Um, our blog, Succeed in Football, the Friday Wrap, which you can register for um, on my uh, Twitter, which is at Inside the League. Uh, we've got, of course, the mothership, ITL, InsideTheLeague.com, the website, which has a monthly fee of, of 30 bucks a month, 29.95, and then two books as well. Um, but, uh, you know, listen, if you want to just start somewhere, check out the blog and check out the Twitter account today. We, the day we're taping this, I had a great conversation with a bunch of Lions fans about the direction the team's going and what to look for in the draft and who their evaluators are and kind of where they stand in the league. And it was a lot of fun. And sometimes I don't do that very often, but when I do, it's, it's really great. I think you know me long enough, Paul, to know that I don't rip people. I don't try to pick on people. I don't say who's dumb. Um, I try to have respect for people in the industry, even the ones that that don't always have successes because the one who's not successful today could be the most successful of all tomorrow. Um, I mean, I'm old, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Belichick was coaching in Cleveland 
and uh, no one was calling him a genius then, that's for sure. Today's uh, failure could be tomorrow's genius. So anyway, lots of ways to access ITL that don't cost any money or they don't cost much money. Um, check them all out. And uh, listen to his podcast, uh, Best Player Available on, uh, is it Draft Brawl, Brawl Network? That's the uh, yes. Draft Brawl uh, on Spotify is where, uh, the best place to find it, Draft yes. Brawl. Yes, Draft Brawl. And it, again, I, I put it all over my Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Neil, so much uh, so much uh, for uh, coming on. Um, I can't wait to talk uh, talk with you or have you on at a later date because this was a blast. This blast for me too, Paul. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Thank you. All right. Have a great day, guys. Bye.